This is this has got intensely complex for no good reason. Welcome to The Writer and the Critic, a monthly podcast devoted mostly to books, reviews and whatever else takes our fancy. I'm your host, Kirsten McDermott. With me is your co-host, my co-host, Ian Mond. Hello, Ian. How are you? No, I'm, I'm, I'm the world's co-host. I'm You're everyone's world- co-host. Okay. I'm the national co- yes. That sounds like a lot on your shoulders, mm. especially now. I know. I know. <laughs> Good is. luck with that. Good luck with that. Yeah, I'm thanks. happy just to be the co-host of this podcast. <laughs> The last episode of this podcast for the year, so panic, we'll be back in February. That is um, true. But we are taking a couple of months off, as we do over summer every year. I'm looking forward to that, although I'm not looking forward to summer, but we're not going to talk about the weather on this podcast today. <laughs> it's been, no, see, we're in the eye of the storm. It's been suspiciously mild and cool. It's south, uh, down south, up north, horrendous. Up north where? In Ballarat, Australia. where you live? No. Oh, no, Australia. in Queensland. In Queensland, Queensland New terrible. South Wales. Horrendous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is spring, so, uh, yeah, not looking forward to summer from that perspective. No, it's going to be shit. Anyway, let's, uh, you're right, let's not talk about it. So what I did want to say is last episode we talked about Slow Horses by Mick Heron, and in between the last episode and this episode I watched the first and only the first episode of the series because only. I did not like. So, 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 so I got so mad. In in the notes you've gone, did not like, cheated. Did not like. How, so What does cheated Jay- mean? <laughs> so Jason watched it with me because he, he wanted to rewatch it anyway. And I said, oh, I think I'm going to watch it. Oh, cool. Okay. We'll, we'll watch it together. And so <laughs> watching the first episode and – He's giving me these little sideways glances. Yeah. <laughs> he said, you're not liking it, are you? I said, no, I'm really angry. <laughs> so, it's very so, faithful to the book. It almost is, but it no. So okay. I don't know if you've rewatched it. I, I watched the full first season. I'm now watching the second season. So Before go, or after you read the book? I, I, do, I read the book. Yeah, after the book. Yeah, okay. As with, as with Didn't you. Didn't the beginning of it just piss you off like mightily because they had this train station so airport then train station thing and the whole like in the book um it works with the reader not knowing that this is an exercise because it's all in i can't remember his name now the the idiot river it's river River. River. it's all in river's head head. so we only know what river is like and he's concentrating on the exercise as though it's real because that's how you do it. And it's really, really effective in the book. And you don't know until the very end that it was just an exercise and not an actual terrorist bombing. And it's so effective in the book. And in the TV show, they have elected to show you the control room and other people. And the people in the control room who are running the exercise are also acting as though this is real and someone is actually about to blow up the airport. And it's just... It made me so because it's cheating. It's cheating. You and think I'm, you don't think that people would take it seriously if they've been told you've? They're you've taking been- it seriously, but the things they're saying is not the things they're saying. If you are controlling an exercise over, you are control. You're trying to control a genuine potential terrorist event, and it when it's on screen, the way they elected to to film it and script it. It is, look, I'm a bit like Annie in Misery in that. It's like you can trick me and you can, like, deceive me as a viewer, as a reader, and it's at the end of it's like, oh, that was clever. I didn't see that. Fantastic. But don't fucking cheat. 
I hate that. I hate it so much. And there is a okay, couple of things. That is literally the first four minutes. And then there's I know, another 50 but, minutes of the episode. I know. And I did watch the whole thing and there were other, like they brought, um, you know, the the, the kidnapping oh, came forward a bit and I, and I could see why they made uh, the young man who was kidnapped a bit more, um, I guess, bolshy from the start because, again, in a book, being inside someone's head who's very passive and locked down and scared can still be really interesting, very boring on screen. So I can see why they did that, but it's, it's like, I don't, I feel like now <laughs> I've read the book, I know the story. I had problems with the story that I see will probably be translated to the miniseries. I just couldn't be bothered. Well, it doesn't switch, it doesn't switch perspective in scenes because uh, it's TV. So it doesn't, well, you know, it does, but it's allowed but, to but, because it's TV. It's, it's TV. <laughs> It is very – so I've watched that and I'm now yeah. most of the way through season two because I, I read Dead Lions as well, which is has all the same problems as uh, Slow Horses mm. in terms of writing, but it's a bit more ambitious. Um, but, I mean, yeah, the, I mean, it's, the they're very was, faithful. Yeah, the acting was entertaining. Also, as I, I did fear, <laughs> River in the TV show is just so much more irritating than River in the book and he was pretty irritating for me in the book. And I just – and I know it's meant to be and I just went – I. The story wasn't there to capture me because I knew the story. Gary Oldman was really good. Some of the actors were really good. Um, the uh, the young spy who is she's taken out in the first episode. No, it's like, she's in, it's the second. Second, maybe we watched two. I don't know. Maybe we watched two because just to see if I didn't like it. <laughs> and well, then I thought, wow. Yeah, okay. So she's gone the rest of the. Oh, yeah. I. Mm, Anyway, anyway, yeah, but, uh, I have saved some time. But the in actor my life. playing Sid is is pretty famous. I mean, she's in um, she's in House of the Dragon and all that. So she plays. You, you watched House of the Dragon? No. She played. Okay. Anyway, she's in that. <laughs> right. okay, I did know on. the actor though. Um, but anyway, it's it's fine. I have saved time in my life because that's a show I don't need to watch. Unlike the Fall of the House of Usher, which I did watch. Which is like the highest recommend. Oh my goodness! If you are at all so, I've seen, inclined, I've seen mi- wow. very mixed views on Fall of the House of Usher. Sure, you're going to have mixed reviews on anything. Okay, no, no, I just it's been, it seems being a bit marmitey. That's all. Marmitey? What's that? No, that's it, some people like it. Some people, you know, people love it. People hate it. I've, yeah, I've I, before, I mean, it is Grand Guignol on an epic scale. And it is ah, look the oh, thing. So it's OTT. It's 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 very over the top. Oh, absolutely. But so, and it's really funny because I did see a few people saying um, things like, "Oh, it's it's so extreme and so." But you know, Poe was much more subtle. It's like at the time, Poe was not fucking subtle. He's subtle now that we've had the Saw franchise, and you know. He was not subtle at the time. He it was fairly extreme literature at the time, but it is oh, the the thing about the team that Mike Flanagan brings together, um, and the scripting and the direction and the acting the, in all of his shows that are pulled from a source material. There is such an evident, deep knowledge and love and respect for the short, the source material, even when it diverges as the haunting of hill house did it diverges in a way that is still clearly we love this book um, and here's what we're doing with it um and the same with the fall of the house of usher there it was 
if if you're at all, and I am not like a Poe expert by any means, I definitely have not read every single thing Poe wrote and, and I don't have a deep, deep, deep knowledge. But even for someone who like is fairly knowledgeable about Poe and certainly the like, you know, the famous stories and so on that, that people would be familiar with, even if they probably haven't read, th- there's, there's so many, not just Easter eggs, they're things that you think are Easter eggs. And you go, oh, nice nod, very clever. And then later they come back and they're deeply interwoven into the story. Um, I, I just, I, I loved it almost without reservation. It, it's just the acting is fantastic. The uh, These are a group of actors who Flanagan has worked with in many of his endeavours and they clearly So we watched well all together. this TV. So there's The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, Midnight Bly, Mass. yeah. Yeah. Oh, Midnight Mass is amazing. No, <laughs> Midnight Mass may be my favourite of I'm, his, I'm, although okay. House I'm of Usher have, is very close. I might have not. to watch some of this stuff because I haven't watched any Flanagan. I'm, I think I'm, I, I haven't even watched Gerald's Game because I don't normally do. I haven't watched Gerald's Game because I didn't like the book. And also at the time it came out, it, like, who was Mike Flanagan? Uh, <laughs> now I, I only realised, um, I think, well, you know, House of Usher, or maybe anyway, realized Gerald's game was his. It's like, oh, maybe I'll I'll check that out. That could be interesting. Mm. And and when I like, I'm going to stress again because we're very fond of saying, oh, this person, you know, uh, Mike Flanagan works with a team of people. You know, there are other people scripting, directing. He works with a, a cohort of actors, as I said, who are often uh, like the same co core cohort. It is a team. Like these stories are a team effort and they can be polarising. Um, I, I know one of the critiques levelled at Mike Flanagan's work is that they can be very talky and that's really true. But I am totally on board for deep philosophical discussions <laughs> of life and death and horror and, you know, it is. Think if people have watched both, I think you'll get why <laughs> I'm saying this, but think The Good Place but for horror? Yeah, okay. Think that, of the episode of The Good Place with the trolley problem. Yeah. But a whole show. Yeah, okay. So there is a lot of talking um, between characters and a lot of philosophical discussions and House of Usher in particular is a spectacle and there was one particular, <laughs> it's only about eight episodes, but we, we didn't watch, like binge it. We watched it over a, a couple of weeks, a few weeks. And it was one night and I, I, Jason and I had a bad day, whatever, or even a bad night, I think. I think we'd been somewhere and we came back and it wasn't too late to watch something on TV. And I said to him, you know what, do you want to watch an episode of Usher? Because I think I feel like watching uber rich people being slaughtered. And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. That'll be nice. And, and, and it, it delivered. <laughs> oh, it's so delivers. Um, anyway, I love I love House of Usher. Okay, I actually okay, haven't, yeah, read, I've Flanagan- haven't read the Poe. I haven't read Poe, so you, you don't you don't need to read Poe if you have read Poe. And as I said, like you you know some Poe hmm. stuff, right? You know, yeah. like so you there'll be some references that you'll get anyway. But you don't even need to. The story itself, it's not a pastiche. It's not a oh yeah. A, it, it, the story itself is really good and really yeah, but is it, but is, does it does it use the spine of the Poe? You don't need to like honestly. You don't need to. It, it's like with other. I'm not saying no, no. But sometimes I enjoy reading mm. the thing first to get that richer you textual text. You would need to read. I could give you a reading list. <laughs> like it, it is not the fall of the House of Usher. 
it is, but it is also it's the Pokemon Black Cat, the Cask of uh, uh, Amontillado, um, the it's the, the Raven, the the like uh, the Telltale Heart. Like it, it is like murders at the Rue Morgue, and it is clever. It is so clever. Um, each episode is titled after a different short story, so I guess that could be a reading list if you wanted it to be. If you wanted to read those stories first and then okay. watch it, but um, it, it is it really really well scripted. So I don't think you'd have to be overly familiar with Poe or, or have read it. What no, no, but, it's, it, no, no, but the- it's the it's the it's when you see something, you go, ah, I see what they're doing. I enjoy that yeah, for some, yeah. that feeling. A bit like oh. perfect segue. Okay, <laughs> perfect segue after the forest. Yes, we should actually talk about the books we're going to be talking about on the podcast rather because than me rant for another thirty minutes about. When I was um, reading after the forest, <laughs> I thought of you the whole time. Because I knew that there were things in here that I wasn't picking up on that you probably did. Okay, that I mean that's very possible. <laughs> there. So um, let's introduce the book properly. Um, okay, we are discussing two novels this month. Uh, they are After the Forest by Kel Woods, which is a fairly recent release. So I'm going to try not to give maybe the usual level of spoilers that we do because it did only come out last month. Um, so if you're listening to this podcast. Uh, soon after we've posted it, uh, you may not have had a chance to get and read the book. And the second novel we are going to be discussing afterwards is I Am Homeless If This Is Not My Home by Laurie Moore, which is a very, very different book, but um, we'll get to that. But first, After the Forest by Kel Woods, I'm just going to read the back cover copy, um, which is I've just started, like it used to be called flap copy, right? Because books yeah. were released in hardcover, there was a thing. And, I've just, and there was a flap. There's a flap, and that's where it was printed. And now it's like it's such an old. I said it oh, a while ago now to someone, and they're like, "Why is it called that?" <laughs> is it because like you people are like, going, "Yay, how great it is!" It's like no, but that's an interesting interpretation. Um, anyway, here is the back cover copy, or as it is increasingly being known as, but incorrectly, the blurb. Sixteen fifty, the Black Forest, Württemberg. Fifteen years after the witch in the gingerbread house, Greta and Hans are struggling to get by. Their father and stepmother are long dead, Hans is deeply in debt from gambling, and the countryside lies in ruin, its people recovering in the aftermath of a brutal war. Greta has a secret, though. The witch's grimoire secreted away and whispering in her ear, and the recipe inside that makes the most sinfully delicious and addictive gingerbread. As long as she can bake, Greta can keep her small family afloat. But in a village full of suspicion, Greta and her intoxicating gingerbread are a source of ever-growing suspicion and vicious gossip. And now, dark magic is returning to the woods, and Greta's own power, magic she is still trying to understand, may be the only thing that can save her, if it doesn't kill her first. And that is a really awesome piece of copy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really good and, and very accurate. It doesn't give too much Very away. accurate. Drag the... Drags you in, um, gives you the the outline of what's going to happen without spoiling things and without actually even revealing too much from the beginning. It, it's I'm very impressed with whoever wrote that. No, no, it's, that, that's definitely good. So um, we're in the. I'm going to say it's going to sound rude, but we're in the golden age of European fairy tale fan fiction. Would you say, Kirsten? <laughs> um, I uh, no, I don't think I I would. In that, well, I mean, unless the golden age has been around for several decades now <laughs> okay i mean that it, does, it, it could be a generational period it doesn't have to be uh two minutes so 
I just think for the last, yeah, 20, 30 years, especially in Australia, uh, Australian authors, and that includes you, Kirsten. It does include me. Have really um, lent heavily on the whole European fairy tale and done interesting things with them. So this one is basically what happens next to Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. And uh, as I as I found during my PhD, Hansel and Gretel is actually not that well-known a fairy tale. It's one that I... I mean, it's not well known. Everyone knows that story. No, it, no. Apparently, they they don't. Like it's what? one I've known since I was as long as I could remember. Come on, no, no, no. Come, come back a step. No, Thanks. no. Seriously, and you know why? Because Disney hasn't done it. But it involves a gingerbread house. And <laughs> I know. It, yep. Are yep. you are you are you serious that, that, that I there is came a- across a significant amount of people when I was. Uh, doing my PhD and I would, I would go to, you know, research conferences and present things and the, and a significant amount of people did not know Hansel and Gretel. Okay. All right. Yeah, Fair interesting, enough. Interesting. Interesting. Because one of the things I, I do love about the book is how she seeds the original fairy tale into the story, mm. but not at once. Yeah. So, so how it, how it acts as both the central core of this idea of abandonment that runs through the whole book, being abandoned by your parents, your father in particular, so that so that so it plays that central role. But then, how each of the elements that were that are famous from the story are there and are there it genuinely. Like she hasn't revisited them or done a revisionist. At least this is where I need you to help me. But it doesn't seem <laughs> like she's done a revisionist take on it. It is a house they came across that was edible. Um, mm. But 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 it's not it's not like we get that uh, this lengthy flashback giving that story. It is seeded throughout quite cleverly. There is definitely the assumption that the reader is familiar with that story because the book relies on that prior knowledge, not necessarily in any detail. But I think if you had if you're one of those people who had never encountered Hansel and Gretel, I'm not sure. Yeah, you, quickly you, this book would work for you because I think it does assume that at least the level of knowledge that you know. There's a fairy tale about two kids who get lost slash abandoned in the forest. They come across a witch with a gingerbread house, and bad things happen. And you may not know all of the details, but I think if you're not aware of that, um, I, I'm, I'm not saying the book wouldn't work. I just feel like it may not have that immediate um, engagement that that this this book really effectively does because I, I you know it is it is a well-known fairy tale it is not a disney tale it is not you know one of the ones that has been um just osmosed through our culture <laughs> without even trying uh, mostly through disney uh so it is um yeah there, there might be some readers who aren't aware of it but also i think you know the, the readers for this book probably are <laughs> Yeah, if you come in, yes. I mean, this is not my niche. <laughs> this is not my catnip. Uh, but yeah, I, I but I, I came in knowing obviously enough yeah. to, to to pick it all up. The one thing I have a question because we have some questions for you, okay? Because mm-hmm. um, the original fairy tale isn't is it situated in sixteen fifty in the sense of the seventeenth well, century? When was well, it originally written? Is what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Huh. Okay. That's a whole thesis, Ian. Um, Can you if, summarise it in two minutes, please? Thanks. If we okay, if we go back to what we what we'll call the source tale for this, which is uh, the tale recorded slash written slash edited slash collected by the brothers Grimm, and yes. that's a whole other whole other thing about about, about appropriation how, how it, and how not they... even like just not even we're not even going to get into okay. the, the labour of the women who actually. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. No, no. 
side podcast, um, <laughs> maybe just for the patrons. <laughs> Kirsten recounts her PhD. <laughs> no one wants to hear that. Um, so if we go back to, to Grimm, and because th- that is the story that I think Kel Woods is drawing from, that's the version of the story that Kel Woods is drawing from. So the Brothers Grimm first put together their collection, which was essentially um, has been translated nursery and household tales. It wasn't called fairy tales. It wasn't the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. It was nursery and household tales because they were, you know, their their mission statement, I guess, was to collect collect German folk tales and um, stories told to children and, and so on. It, you know, write them down because these mm. were um, not written down for the most part. Um, again, huge hand wave. Don't fairy tale scholars. I know. <laughs> Don't come at me. Um, so the first volume they published in 1812 yep. and they published, well, several iterations, but we look at primary, primarily three main volumes or editions of, of this book, the last one being published in 1864. So that was the time period that the Grimm's were publishing. And between the three volumes, some stories dropped out because they decided they weren't German enough. Um, other stories dropped in. Stories oh, right. Were- so when you say three volumes, you don't mean – you mean revisionist, like the first yes, volume. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Revising editions. the editions, their editions. editions. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, cool. Um, yep. So as I said, stories dropped out. There's about 200-odd, bit over 200 stories in, in the in the collection as it stands now. Um, and there, there are current – obviously they – well, maybe not obviously to some listeners. Um, the Brothers Grimm are German, so these – were books published in German, and there are many, many, many English translations. Um, Jack Sipes has done a very good translation of the Complete Brothers Grimm. Um, the so when they went four volume, ah, that was my next question. This is fascinating to me. When they say Complete Brothers Grimm, do yeah. they choose the eighteen sixty four, not the eighteen twelve? Uh, there are trans- yeah, there are translations of the different editions. Okay. Um, okay, usually, gotcha. when it's done for the ma- mass market. It will, as as opposed to for scholarly interest, um, it will. It, they'll usually usually go for the eighteen sixty four because it's like the final volume. Okay. Um, but that does leave out some early stories, and significantly, um, many tales have been slightly rejigged or tweaked to suit what the brothers Grimm by that stage felt was better representing the German people. Okay. So they went from we're just going to, I mean, I don't think they ever really did just say we're just going to collect these things. I think they always had a philosophical mission, but it, it clarified throughout the, the 19th century. Okay. Um, and germanely, because we're discussing After the Forest, which is based on Hansel and Gretel, the really interesting thing about Hansel and Gretel, and it's such a, it's a short story, It you know, things happen, it's very condensed but there's really significant changes that the brothers Grimm made so the first version of this story that they collected in 1812 there was no stepmother she was the children's mother Ah. and the mother and the father pretty much had equal responsibility for deciding in a time of famine that they would abandon the children because they couldn't feed the family so they would abandon the children in the woods so they could continue to feed themselves and presumably after the gotcha. famine have more children, um, which, by the way, what a lot of mammals do. We're mammals. A lot of mammals do this. A lot of mammals are like, you know what, kids need to go. We'll have more later. So let me guess, the family unit, the importance of the family unit. Especially the mother. 
and especially so, the mother within the family unit, so it's easier to use a stepmother because by, by 1864, yeah, gotcha. and I think that that had actually changed in the intervening, had definitely changed in the intervening years. I can't pinpoint exactly yeah. when off the top of my head, um, because the brothers Grimm felt that this was not a good portrayal of Germanic motherhood. Yes, because <laughs> mothers do not abandon their children's wood. Two, two significant shifts happened in in this story. In that, first of all, a, a stepmother was introduced. Yes, and we have, and this is a whole other podcast about the uh, terrible history we have in the West of demonising stepmothers, which is <laughs> so unfair. And anyone who is a stepmother. On behalf of fairy tales, I apologise. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so a, the stepmother was introduced to, to replace a dead mother. Yes. And the responsibility and the decision and the idea for abandoning the children was shifted to her. Rather than which, as, as equal between the two of them. Yeah, which I always... And when I say always, I mean even as a, a young, young child, and I wouldn't have been able to articulate it then, but I always felt it's it's like the father still agrees and he's yeah, the one who takes them out it, there. It, it's always like you're led to leave. He's, ash, he's actually a passive agent. He's so yeah. bet- he's so bewitched by her, you know, attracted, I assume sexually. At the, that's how I read the story. Well, that, not in not in the, the fairy tale. No, but, but he's but – he's, He's so into her that he'll do whatever she says. And yes, in, already- in After the Woods, yes. In, well, well, that's what I mean. After the well, Woods no, no, compounds no. this this dynamic because it, it, it well, this further is takes all responsibility away from Han- Hans and Greta's but father ori- because he is. But, but in the original. Okay, so, so this is really interesting. And we're going to get there. Mm. So, with the original story, the father is a passive figure. Ta- Kel has taken this. By the Kel end of a- the Grimm's versions he's he's he is still the one who takes them into the woods yeah but 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 it's not he wouldn't have seen it as his decision he's doing it on orders essentially yeah i mean depending and again i i do not i do not read german um so i've never read the original german version of the tale but most of the english translations i have read there is either but that's certainly the way Kill woods is taking it that's the way Kill woods is there's either implicitly or or explicitly stated that yeah there's a bit of an idea that he's you know he's bullied or henpecked by the yeah yeah and so and so the key theme of this novel Hmm. is that that question of abandonment why did the father who loved us yep um let's just leave us in the forest Hmm. and it's because it's because of our stepmother they sort of know that but they don't know what what it yeah. was about their stepmother that made them made their father make such a horrific decision so it's funny because it it compounds as you just said it compounds the issues that are inherent in the revised fairy tale yeah yeah the, the, the fact well that's problematic is. isn't it <laughs> Fairy tales well, that's are incredibly it. problematic. But, so, so, so there's yeah, okay, and I don't want to throw Kill Woods under the bus here, but there are obviously different ways you can take this. And so she's gone with the 1864 version and then attempted to explain that, or explain mm-hmm. that version, rather than go with the 1812 version. Or and I understand why she's probably because that's I assume the 1864, as you're saying, is the one that's more open it's to the mainstream. More well-known version, no, Taylor. Like people who know yeah. Hansel and Gretel know it's a stepmother. You know, they they know that 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 is that has become the canonical version of Hansel and Gretel that people will know, even if they've not read the story, like since they were a kid or 
you know, that that's what they know. They know, you know, abandon the woods, trail of breadcrumbs, stepmother, witch, gingerbread house, okay, so, oven. They they yeah. they're, they're the elements that people so without, know and associate with hunts. So without reviewing a book that wasn't written. <laughs> so this is, I'm just going to play because this is fascinating to me. This is this mm. is I didn't know this stuff. Okay, so because um, to be clear, I really enjoyed this book. So yeah. without reviewing a book that wasn't written, the more subversive way of approaching the fairy tale would have been to say that actually the father was an asshole. The stepmother it, it, to re- reverse it to say no, no, the father was never a passive player here. He or he agreed. The stepmother could could have been uh, bad, but the father was as bad. Not 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 yeah. the passive player. And, and listeners, Ian has not thrown me a softball here, but I will say, in my when I when I looked at Hansel and Gretel and in no, no um, wait, wait, what did you do that? I can't remember. <laughs> I haven't read everything you've written. No, seriously, I know, you're a bad friend. Um, so I, I wrote a novella called But Sugar, which is published as part of the Never After series. It's on my shelf. Yeah, well, you Does don't that help? most of that shit. You need to actually read it. Yeah, yeah but, <laughs> but I gave you money. Well, I gave you a publisher. Anyway, keep going. Anyway, and so I, I was really interested in this evolution deliberate not an evolution like a rewriting like we say it the evolution of the fairy tale no no the Grimm's deliberately rewrote it right and I was really interested in that I was really interested in the dynamics around the the original family and the responsibility and abandonment and all of you know parent kids everything so one of the things I played with in my story was whether whether the the mother was a stepmother or or or, or the mother um and Gretel is you know, she she was definitely our mother and Hans like oh, I think maybe she was our stepmother so I sort of play with that but yeah. I definitely landed responsibility with the father in my story because ultimately especially if the woman is a step parent ultimately you know the responsibility for those young children is with the parents and if one of those parents decides to abandon them in the woods no one's forcing him to <laughs> Yeah, okay. Oh, and in, in in the original Grimm's fairy tales, interestingly enough, when the kids do find their way back home, the stepmother has conveniently died. Wonder what happened to her. Two dead wives. Hmm. Losing one is bad luck. Losing two is careless, right? Or or, or worse. Uh, wow, so, wow, 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 wow. It's wow. a really yeah, interesting okay. story for such a small tale. And I, during my research, I came across, I collected these little kids' books because I was doing stories for adults and I was reading stories for written for an adult audience. But I was collecting these little illustrated fairy tale kids' books in in op shops and things as a, as a sideline. And I've got this one which I've still kept and it's amazing. It's written it's like a it's a board book. So for folks who aren't aware, they're very the pages aren't pages, they're thick cardboard. They're made for very young children who can handle these books and chew on them and everything without completely ruining the book. So it's so it's written for a very young child to have that read to them. And it's, I think there are four, maybe, I think only four fairy tales. So it's it's a thick book because it's a board book. But, you know, the stories yeah. are in there. One of them's Hansel and Gretel. They've toned the stories down so much for the age of the audience to not scare the kids that they don't mention once in the entire story of Hansel and Gretel that the woman in the gingerbread house is a witch. The word witch is not in there. Oh, my God. So what you get as an adult stepping back, if you if you remove the context that we have as an adult reading this story to a child, what you have is two children who go into the woods. They're not abandoned by their father. They wander away and get lost. So there's no abandonment. There's no breadcrumbs. They wander off while he's chopping wood. They just wander off and they get lost. They come across this gingerbread house, which they start to eat. This woman tells them off. They kill her, take her stuff, and go home. <laughs> <laughs> and she's not even a witch. <laughs> like, it's 
Not that it's good to just kill a witch if she doesn't do anything bad to you. Anyway, but there's none of the locking Hansel in a cage and trying to fatten him up to it. There's none of that because it's a, it's a, of all the stories to choose, Hansel and Gretel is not one that works by stripping away the horror. You just make the children monsters. <laughs> okay, so going back to this book then. Going, going back, back to After the Forest. After the Forest. Yeah. Okay, so. I think what Cowboys does really well here. Is so no, no, no. Takes, I want to know. Were you, what was your thoughts? Of the, yeah. Okay. Go. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Was like she she takes these versions of the fairy tales. Her her project here is not to retell these stories in any in in, in a way that radicalizes the narrative right she her her project isn't to go well what shouldn't the father be responsible for his children or well is it actually a good thing to kill old women who live in the woods and bake um her project was to (laughs) to fill (laughs) i know right monsters (laughs) five-year-old monsters Seriously, they push her in an oven, take her shit, and run home. And the father's like, "Yay, we're rich!" It's like family of psychopaths. <laughs> anyway, that's the rewrite I want to see. Actually, the family of psychopaths <laughs> don't kill witches. Um, anyway, so that's not Kelwood's project. She is taking these well-known versions of the fairy tales. Um, and she is filling in explanatory gaps, right? Filling in like what may have happened. So, in- but by situating them in the real world, very importantly, well, a, f- a fantasy. There is magic. There is magic. No, 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 no. no. She's <laughs> she's she's situ- she's given us a year, sixteen fifty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's given us, uh, and then she's brought in the historical detail from that year. And so yeah, she's, yeah, so- she had said it in in a real in a real year in. Uh, an area of Europe which will become Germany. Yes. So, so, so to be clear, I'm not saying that it's not a fantasy novel and yeah. that it's, it's social realism. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is she's deliberately – she's she could have this, she could have kept being, being hazy about where this yeah. actually, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so she she deliberately isn't. This yeah, is, no, no. She, she is using these stories to to explore the, the fairy tale but also to, I guess, um, well, it's, it's a it's – a, like it's a tension, isn't it? You've got you're using imaginative stories and fantastical elements to explore real life issues yep. and the issues of war, the issues of um, you know, poverty, class, you know, obviously abandonment of children, yes, <laughs> persecution of women, and that's that's her her project with this book. It's not to oh, isn't Hansel and Gretel a weird story? I'm gonna look at it in a different way it's using that framework to tell this story and she interleaves or I should say interweaves a whole bunch of other fairy tale motifs through this so each of the chapters in the story begins with a little mini excerpt from a, a, a second narrative that without spoiling it ultimately does come back and uh meet Greta's narrative, it, but it begins as a kind of a re well a, a mashup. It's Snow of, White, isn't it? Well, it's a mashup of Snow, like Magic Mirror, Snow White, and yeah. Snow White and Rose Red, which is and the two Snow Whites in those fairy tales are not the same girl. But in this, in what Kel Woods is doing, she's kind of merged elements of those stories together and and changed it and changed it because when the you know the tale comes into the real world. Um, 
you know, things happen. So in, in Snow White and Rose Red, which is definitely a much less well-known fairy tale than um, you know, Magic Mirror Snow White, um, it's two sisters, Snow White, Rose Red, um, and they really, really briefly, and there are other variations. Um, actually, Mar- Margot Lanigan's Tender Morsels is a retelling of Snow doesn't White. Doesn't Fables, doesn't, what's his name, Willingham's Fables Definitely. Do? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. They. Uh, I mean, I've not read Fables for quite some time, but I would absolutely say that would be in there. But anyway, so they're two sisters and they meet an, an evil dwarf, and I'll, I'll use that word obviously with reservations, but in the fairy tale world, evil dwarf who, uh, you know, he's, trapped in things and they help him and he's horrible and and there's a bear who helps him so this is why you have the bear in the story of, of after the forest ah i see i wonder what the bear was about. yeah okay yeah. gotcha ah. and, oh, and that's, you know, it's, oh that's the oh yeah ah. yeah so she so kel woods has taken rose red and snow white and mished up some other stuff including there's like rapunzel or not rapunzel there's um rumpelstiltskin references um you know other little things and made that what what appears to be just a nice little decorative fairy tale, but isn't. But when you get to the end of the book, and again, I won't really say how it works, it becomes intrinsic to the main narrative of of Greta and Hans. But in amongst all that, she's also inserted the witch trials, which obviously yes. is a, a key factor <laughs> of the sixteenth and seventeenth century, yep. and and actually longer. So. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, to me, this is the thing. It's it's a really interesting tapestry of a novel mm. because I knew those those things you just mentioned. I didn't know the connections, but I knew there was something going on there. Yeah. I knew there was more. I, look, I knew Rose Red. I know the Rose Red story only through fables, so vaguely. Yep. <laughs> Obviously, know the classic Snow White story, but I didn't know about the evil dwarf. And mm-hmm. I didn't know about the bear situation. So these things. <laughs> the bear situation. The bear situation. All I knew about. The only, thing, in fact, the, bear, the only thing about the bear, and again, no spoilers, is that the reveal of the bear around who the bear is, is so obvious from the I very mean, point. I didn't think. Well, this is interesting. And I'd be, I'd be keen to hear your thoughts because okay. for me, and I don't know whether that's just because fairy tales, which is something I know a lot about now. Or whether whether it is less obvious, but I I felt that <laughs> this the, what the bear is. So we should say the bear that without spoiling it again, Greta comes across a bear who licks honey off her right hand. at the very beginning. And it's literally the first scene in the book. Yeah, um, in in the forest where bears haven't been forever. Uh, yeah, it's right? a black bear for me. Big, it's a big black? black bear, unusual. Yeah, She's it. terrified, but the bear doesn't harm her. It, it, it yeah. And for for me as a reader, for me as a reader of this book, I felt like who the bear was was obvious from almost the very beginning. And so I wasn't sure whether that was intended to be a reveal to the reader or whether it was the one of those instances of reader irony where you know something the character doesn't know. Right? You know, you know who the bear is. So everything Greta does and says around this person who is the bear you're reading at a second level because you know yeah, I, this person's not, the bear. But I don't know. that. I, and no, then so, I didn't okay, know. so someone, someone is coming then mm. without the background you have. To me, it was structured and sold as a genuine reader reveal, not as okay. reader you know something that, that Greta doesn't know. Okay. And, and partly, and I say that because it happens reasonably late into the novel. Very, very late. The way And the way it's played in the novel, it's a moment of woe, profound. So to me, it, 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 it's a revelation that leads into the climax. That's yep. probably the better way. You know, and 
So to me, it, it, yes, absolutely. There's an. I, I don't think. Again, we're not speaking to Kel Woods here, but I, I would be surprised if I found no, no. You, I expected you to know who, who this person was. Okay. Yeah. In that case, unfortunately, I don't think it did work, and that's possibly because of the um, fairly close proximity to the bear and to the character <laughs> that the bear will be um, when you when you encounter them in, in the book. So to me that was like, oh, well, clearly that's who the bear is and why are we taking so long to get to who the bear is? And then I rethought myself, and well, maybe I meant to know who the bear is and it's all just about yeah, Greta's I, ignorance. Just the way it's structured in the novel, the way it's played out, it's no, it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> sometimes it's hard to know, like, how, how, how much is working because – and you can't write a book that's going to cater to every single person. Because to be clear, we have shape-shifting char- uh, characters here. So yeah, we do. One is, a, one is a bear and there are wolves as well. Yeah. Where do the wolves fit in? Like, what, what fairy tale are they taken from or that, is this just a – Oh, a- um, I mean, it can be a nod. There, there is, there, There's a whole <laughs> class of fairy tales about brothers turning into wolves and uh, other cre- – like, there's, it's a thing in fairy tales. <laughs> People, especially brothers, like, look, outside, the, outside, the, outside the werewolf mythology itself, this yes. is not what they are because they're no, actual- no, 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 no. So the, the, this is these, – these are fairy tale shapeshifters, not horror shapeshifters. Yeah. So they're not werewolves. They're they're bro- not even, they're not a blood like kin brothers. Um, they're um, you know, a band of mercenary soldiers who've got this uh, thing going on for generations, <laughs> right? And people get inducted into this. But you know, it's it's a brotherhood of, of wolves. Okay, my last que- okay. So my last question is: the different types of magic on display, green versus tatter magic. Is that a invention of Kel Woods, or is that also working off? I mean, it, look, it, it, it's not gonna, it's not coming from a specific fairy tale, if that's what you're asking. To my knowledge, okay. But you know, there is, there is a, a, a long tradition in, in fantasy, and I, I guess. Oh yes, I know, I know a long tradition in fantasy of good magic and bad magic, but not that, good that, magic, not just good magic, bad magic, but destructive but chaos, chaos natural, level, natural magic yeah, versus, natural magic, yeah, you know, quote unquote, artific- magic by artificial means, by yes, by yeah. yeah and you know things that humans construct to make magic yes um, and that that is the one thing that I think disappointed me in this book because I felt like it was in, in the middle it was doing something very interesting with that magic dichotomy um, where they you know because I, I don't I'm not in love with the idea that everything that's natural is good and everything that is man-made is bad which is what this this type of magic system falls down to. And I thought in the middle of the book it was actually doing something very, very interesting and Greta would actually be able to to move, like walk this line between these two Which magic is exactly and right. the good oh and the bad. Oh, my God, that's exactly what I thought was going to happen. And, and yes. see that the green magic, oh, actually has bad parts about it as well and, and the tatter magic has good parts that are useful. And yes. instead it fell very much down into green magic, good, tatter magic, bad. And that f- f- if there's one thing that disappoints me about the book, it is that. But, you know, readers' mileage may vary. No, no, it's exactly it, – it's funny because uh, I, I felt the same. I thought that the, the, that the thing about Greta was that she would find that that balance, that moderation between yeah. the two. But, no, you're right, it just falls on one. And, okay, yeah, I mean, look, so, I've, so overall – because we really haven't spoken about the quality of the book. The writing is wonderful, just, just on, yeah, on the sentence Yeah, the writing level. is absolutely beautiful. And I, I think the the structure of the book is is. 
deceptively simple because it, oh, I, I like how it goes on. It deepens in story. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it starts simple enough. I mean, in, in effect, it starts as hands is a bit of a cad, wasting, you know, uh, betting on things, losing money, being being a bit of a dick. I think uh, that like, I'll just stop you there because I think why have something I got it wrong? The book, no, no. Well, I think that I think your word choice. <laughs> It's not great because well, what the is. book does really well is it embeds Hans's behaviour in his trauma. Right? He's not a dick. He is a deep, no, no, no. deeply traumatised uh, no, person. No, let me finish the sentence. I mean, clearly, yes, that's what it does very well. Yes, it, 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 it explains that he's the way he is because of what he went through. I, I'm just saying that initial flush is you've got the – uh, you've got Greta basically keeping the family afloat. Yeah. And she's essentially viewing herself as a spinster. Yes? Yeah. She's too old now. No one's going to marry her, blah, blah, blah. And then you've got Han, Hans, who is getting up to mischief and seems to not give a shit about his sister uh, beyond the fact that she does everything for him and looks after him. And that's how it is the first. And what I'm trying to say is that the story constantly goes another level, deepens and deepens and deepens in terms of that relationship. Although the one thing I would say is that he does vanish about halfway through the novel. Uh, I mean, literally. From, from, you know, the, uh, from the narrative. From the narrative. I mean, he's he's taken away. I mean, he's, it's not like <laughs> he just goes in a puff of smoke. Uh, he, he's, he's taken away and we lose some of that because of, you know, that, that, that sort of deepening of that relationship. So, so when he does come back towards the end, it's a bit rushed. Mm. But but before that, yes, you're right. His actions and who he is, and the dickish move he does, which I won't spoil, um, is embedded in his trauma. And I thought that was a really good portrayal. I, I, mm. I mean, I really enjoyed this book. I got a lot. Yeah, out of me it. too. It's beautifully too. written. Look, the bear thing is the one quibble I've got. I don't have the background you've got, so I can't say whether X is. You know, I just know that that as a that as a read, it was propulsive and engaging. And what and what I'll say about the bear thing is that. The, the, bear the, the, the bear reveal. Um, the book doesn't live and die on that because no, we, we did know. We did pick it very, very early. If it was meant to be a reveal, sorry, Kelwoods, we picked this very early. That did not diminish my enjoyment of the story. It This story has so much going on and so many layers to it and so many, like it's such a number of intricately woven plot threads that, knowing one of them, pulling one of them loose, it doesn't rely on that. So it doesn't matter because the story is not built around, oh, who's the bear? What's going on with the bear? That is one thing. And if you've picked that, it doesn't matter. There's there's so much in the story. Oh, yeah, there are other, there are, there are places this novel goes that I wasn't expecting. Correct. And, yeah. I, and I love the dynamic with the town and, mm-hmm. and it, for, for, for um, Greta and how she's liked but loathed, you know, treated, uh, you know, because everyone loves her gingerbread, but there's a suspicion about it throughout, mm. which only grows and grows and grows in intensity and goes in places that are not entirely expected. And then yeah. there's the, 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 the want of the, the rich and powerful to abuse her sexually. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's great. I mean, look, I, I, I really enjoyed this book. I would read another Kelwood's novel. I, what oh, I, find I, am on, I am totally on board for her next What book, I find absolutely. interesting is what you've said before, which is that she is basing this on – she has plugged the holes in what's already a problematic tale in terms of how it treats stepmothers and how it treats the father. And I don't know if that's mm. a good thing or a bad thing. And I know it's, clearly it's not something you would have done, but that's – 
So what? That's, that, I, I wrote a different little book. Um, yeah, so it, like, it drags with it some of, some of the issues that fairy tales have, including the evil dwarf. The evil dwarf is in this book, un, yep. like unmitigatingly evil. Yes. Which is not. <laughs> you know, it, it's – I think for those of us who, who read and like and, and write, especially in the fairy tale genre or the, the genre of reimagined fairy tales, I should say, it can be really, really tricky because there is so much in fairy tales and I am quite, I'm quite ambivalent about fairy tales. I think I love them and loathe them in almost equal measure because there is so much about the the canon and the received canon, which is only, it's sort of an iceberg, the received canon of fairy tales. If you sat down with someone who didn't know a lot about the history and so on, you know, the, the most common tales you'll, you'll get mentioned, it's the iceberg. And some of the really interesting and complex tales are like below the surface that a lot of people don't know about if, if you know unless you're you're reading in this area and not just as a scholarly thing I mean there's you know as I said like complete brothers groom translated by Jack Sipes everywhere and, and so on and, and you know and then that's not even this is just as you said at the very beginning sort of the Western European tradition yep. um, it's not even moving into um, you know Asian fairy tales and other areas and, and Eastern Europe fairy tales, which are quite different to what we see in Western Europe sometimes. And anyway, I'm, I will stop because, because this is a week-long podcast otherwise. But the interesting thing is some of the issues with them, like the stepmother issue, the, the, well, the, the dead mother issue, that's a problem in fairy tales, the lack of um, female collaboration and friendship in fairy tales, which is what I looked at in my thesis. There's a whole bunch of stuff. And tackling that without throwing out the – baby with the bathwater I think is an ongoing um, project in this subgenre and authors approach it in completely different ways and one of the the problems we all those of us writing here all have to face is what what do we do with those issues like we do we do we (laughs) really want unmitigatingly evil dwarves as being the only short-statured people (laughs) in stories do we do is that something we want to further um but every author approaches this differently and it's not to say that any one approach is necessarily correct. And Kelwood's is not re, you know, retelling a fairy tale without re- reflection and thought and choosing the elements she's going to use. And But given that she chose them, and we could speak about this for another three hours, but given that she chose them, if someone were to turn around, and it isn't going to be me, but I'm going to throw it out there. Someone were to turn around and say, "Well, this is ableist because she's done and she's leant, leaned into that trope with the evil dwarf." Probably a fair criticism. Okay, fair enough. I mean, this is what you know. We we can't. No one can write perfect books, and there's always going to be issues with any book that's written. And again, it's it's babies and bathwater, right? Yep. So it's it's. A, Difficult situation. And look, some people may come, may have that reaction to this novel, but I just know that as a piece of storytelling and as a piece of writing, it's quite wonderful. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It is. I think we won't we won't be able to discuss much more along these things without giving away major. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> major fine. plot issues. No, no, I think no, no, I think we've covered what, what I was interested in covering, yeah. which is that 
that deeper understanding of what she was, mm. the well she was drawing from. And, and you've yeah. done that. You've explained that because I didn't know that. Oh, well, it listened to a lot of it. And you've done that really well. So thank you very much, Kirsten. You're welcome. And, and whether she's lent on or slightly changed or subverted stuff, well, that'll be, you know, as you said before, your mileage may vary. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not it's not really, it's not in the, in the, the, tr- the, the line of subverting the fairy Correct. tales, this book. This is not what this book is doing. It's patching um, holes. It's explaining what happened next. Yeah, if, it's, if you're yeah. wanting to to read a subversive book about Hansel and Gretel, this is maybe not this book. <laughs> but yeah, this, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. its project. That's not its aim. That's not what it's doing. No. Oh, I think where the subversion sits, well, it's not subversion. It's not even radical. But but, but where, where the interest sits is situating it in 1650. Yeah. Bavaria or whatever, you know, that, that yep. that's interesting. And then bringing the elements of that into the broader magical part of the yeah. story, which is the witch trials and all that sort of stuff. That And the wars, we've got a character who comes back with PTSD and yeah. this sort of stuff is, is really interesting. That's that's mm. a texture that I wasn't expecting that that, that that makes it a bit different to what you would yeah, expect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know what the weird thing is, and I, I like your opinion on this, what did, what did you think of the epilogue? The, the epilogue. The epilogue. What's what was? It? I don't there's remember. Like a, there's a very short second person epilogue. Is it? Cross. I've forgotten. <laughs> oh. forgotten. Um, with with apologies, I think it is forgettable. The the last line of the, what is the final chapter is just perfect. It's a perfect end to the story, and then you turn the page and there's this weird little. As I said, told, told in second person point of view, epilogue of, and I don't know why it's there. I don't know why it's there. There's no similarly structured prologue that it bookends. Um, and I, I've completely forgotten that this <laughs> epilogue was here. The epilogue. I'm actually looking at now. Did you remember. read it, or did you get to the end of the last chapter and think you'd finish the book? <laughs> no, I must have read it. I must have read it, but I might have like my eyes might have not. Yeah. Because it is, you're right. Stylistically, it's completely yeah. different too. Yeah, it. I don't. I don't know why it's there. I think, as I said, the 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 ending and l- the literal last line, last sentence or two of of the final chapter is just perfect. I, I would read it to you, except it would spoil something. So no, it is. I, I, I just, just looked at the last perfect. one. It's, it's gorgeous. It's yeah, just amazing. And then you get this epilogue thing. I don't know. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure whether that was. I don't know where that comes from. Um, that might be the second minor disappointment of the book for me, actually. It's like, take the epilogue off and then it's perfect. If I reread it, I will not read the epilogue. <laughs> so basically, Curse is recommending if you buy this book, skip the epilogue. Skip the epilogue. And frankly, if you're me, just but apparently erase it from your brain because I have no it, it didn't even know it was there. But overall, there. it is it is a it is a an Excellent, excellent novel. And it's a debut novel, which is even more impressive. Oh, we should mention that. Do you know what's not I a debut did. novel? I just did mention it. No, I know. Do you know what's not a debut novel? <laughs> what is Laurie, not a debut Laurie novel? Laurie Moore's I Am Homeless If This Is Not My Home. I do, I, do, I do love a good long title and or a title with punctuation. <laughs> I am so curious to understand what you – to hear what you thought of this book. So cards on the table. I love this book. This is my sort of book. This is my catnip. It's like this book was written for me um, because of what it does and how it does it. I will t- I will do the bl- the blurb, sorry, the blurb. Kirsten, in a second. But it's worth noting that Laurie Moore's been around for some time. Uh, she mostly writes short fiction. 
She's also a critic. In fact, you can find her reviews going back, I think, to the 80s and 90s. So it's mm-hmm. not like – so she's been around for, for a very long time. Her novels, as Paul Segel points out in her New Yorker review of the book, have always been seen as these uh, the black sheep of her, of her work. Right. So, so, this, so, so there was talk whether this would be the breakout novel. Given oh, I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't see this novel even in literary circles being a breakout novel. I mean, th- there was talk about that. Yeah, like I said, she's been around for a long time. Um, yeah, and I think it's read a, I, the blurb okay, before we continue. Read the blurb. Right, what fine, What gosh. is this book that we are about to talk about? All right. Um, a teacher visiting his dying brother in the Bronx, a mysterious journal from the 19th century stolen, stolen from a boarding house, a therapy clown and an assassin, both presumed dead but perhaps not dead at all. With a distinctive irresistible wordplay and singular wry humour and wisdom, Laurie Moore has given us a magic box of longing and surprise as she writes about love and rebirth and the pull towards life. Bold, meditative, theatrical, this new novel is an inventive poet, poetic portrait of lovers and siblings as it questions the stories we've been told which may or may not be true. I am homeless if this is not my home takes us through a trapdoor into a windswept imagined journey to the tragic comic landscape that is unmistakably the world of Laurie Moore. So you and I have not read a book or short story or, or essay by Laurie Moore. Is that correct? Uh, oh, I thought you had, but no, no I no, no. I did some reading around this, that's, but no, this is my first uh, taste of Laurie Moore's work. And whether this is the best way to get into a work is <laughs> questionable, but because you'll note that blurb does quite heavily draw on the fact that this is, you're, you know, Laurie, this is Laurie, you know, this that that's Laurie. sort of. If you like Laurie, she- you'll <laughs> like this. <laughs> so having said that. I it also don't- leaves out. Um- what? The clown shoes? Well, everything. <laughs> because there's, there's like that tiny three lines about the actual novel and the rest of it is like, how great is Laurie Moore? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, and I actually skipped two paragraphs <laughs> that do the exact same thing. Yes. So, um, well, <sighs> funny because the plot what, what it is basically, I mean, the way I described it on the old Facebook is um, Finn goes on a road trip with his ex-girlfriend who is dead and wearing mm-hmm. clown sh- and wearing clown shoes. Yes. That's that's a story. Around that there's there stuff are other with things. there are there are other <laughs> things. There's stuff with Finn's dying brother. There's stuff around uh, a 19th century uh, boarding house or, or bed and breakfast sort of that has some interesting guests. Yeah, so how do they link? How does it all come together? It does. But again, not in a way that you like superficially, I guess. Yeah, but that's the thing. Nothing that happens in this book happens the way you'd think it would happen. Mm. The, the way, and uh, you re- and people should read uh, Paul Siegel's um, review of this novel, which is, and I'll, actually, I'm going to quote out the where is the, where was that published? It's in the New Yorker. Now it does. Okay. You oh, can read it for behind free. Behind a paywall, so maybe you can read it. You can read it for free. Um, if you haven't uh, clicked on another New York article. <laughs> if you have, month. wait till next month. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Um, and then the novel itself begins to come apart. As the pages turn, the story does not build or cohere, it degrades. Subplots and subsidiary characters fall away. 
So began an odd season in my reading life of absent-mindedness and missed subway stops, which I felt that the novel was dis- while I felt that the novel was disintegrating in my hands. It got all over my everything. I am still pulling strands of it out of my pockets. One might say of Laurie Moore what she said of Updike, that she is our greatest writer without a great novel, but how tinny greatness can feel when caught in the inhabiting, staining, possessing power of a work of such determined strangeness and pain, an almost violent kind of achievement, a writer knifing forward, slicing open a new terrain, slicing open conventional notions and obligations of narrative itself. So, by the way, Pale Siegel is the greatest reviewer around. Just just want you to know that. <laughs> and when I read that, having read the book, I said, oh, my God, you've articulated exactly how I felt because the novel doesn't cohere. It does just sort of disintegrate into fluff, but in a way that's extremely interesting. So, so I'm interested, Kirsten, to know your view on that fluffy because I've got more to say, but I could just ramble endlessly. You could, you could just ramble. This is, this is yeah. your part to ramble for half an hour. Correct. Correct. Uh, I really like this book. It's another book that kind of made me realise that I've gotten into um, some interesting reading habits. And I don't mean the types of books I I read. I mean the way I read any book. And I think a lot of, um, I mean, critics probably have a similar issue um, in that you're, you know, you are coming into a book with with your critical thinking hat on, right? Yes. And that's very much what a lot a lot of writers will do as well. We're not just reading a book. We are reading a book with, you know, the view of what how is it working and how is that working and why didn't that work and that's an interesting way of doing this. And, you know, and even if we're not doing that consciously, the most of us, most of the time, that's how we read because that's how we write. So it's it's a, you know, not saying you'll never enjoy reading if you become a writer, but... <laughs> It's a different type of enjoyment, and we've we've read some some books on the podcast which um, have reminded me of maybe leaving the type of hat that I'm wearing like aside for a bit <laughs> before I decide to put it on, and maybe having come out of because I read this after after the forest. Um, which is a a very highly and tightly plotted book yep. where, you know, the every character who walks on, on stage is there for a reason and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's very, it's, it's a beautiful tapestry. It's very tightly done. There's not a thread out of place. There's not, you know. Yep. I am homeless if this isn't my home is like, okay, if I've, if After the Forest is this amazing tapestry that you, if, if you look at closely, there's very, you know, it's just, I, I'm homeless if this is at my home. It's like a basket of yarn <laughs> with a lot of things that someone has started and then gone, oh, no, I'll do this other thing actually and has never gotten back to, which sounds, <laughs> stop laughing. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's what it is. Which may sound like. Not very, you know, satisfying to like, but is incredibly interesting if you accept that's what it is and you stop trying to, I guess, pathfind your way through a novel. Correct. If you go into a book like this and you're looking for, okay, where's the plot? Where does this go? How does this fit? How does it's not going, it's going to be profoundly disappointing. And I feel like this book 
it's sort of it may maybe a poster child for the unfortunate argument that some people do make. Whereas, oh, literary stuff is all there's just no plot, nothing happens. What's the point? correct? This is this is the book that people go. Well, it's all just <laughs> that's, pretentious that's bullshit. The poster child, right? Yeah. <laughs> so but, we but, we could have not just be discussing two different. Two more I know. different, and that's books, what I, I that's I know, I know exactly. You got the conventional and, and the and the radical in a sense, but but that's yes, 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 yes. yes that's the conversation I wanted to have. Because, but I think you need you oh. need to sit with you need you need to yeah. Um, rather than like mapping your way through this book, you need to just sit and let this book takes you where it takes you. Yeah, but because there are pretentious books out there, I've read them. You <laughs> yes, have too. There are. There is a fine line that's being treaded here, and she is extraordinary in how she treads it. Mm. Okay, and so, but you're right. You, keep going. Sorry, I interrupted you. I just wanted to. to I think that. one of the things that makes, and I'm, I'm, I'm so interested in reading Laurie Moore's short fiction now after after reading this because her voice is amazing. How amazing is it? How f- I mean, there are. Oh, look, I, I'm not going to do it, but there are so many lines I just highlight. Dialogue just, is just oh, it's, it's dialogue. Oh, chef's kiss. <laughs> And and this is, I think, one of one of the reasons why this type of novel works when it works, and and I'm homeless definitely works, is even though it is quite a you know, ugh, there's no word for it, is it? All the words we have for this have this patterner of you know, correct, like pretentious, highbrow, literary. Like there's all just yeah. like among genre people, it's like ugh, it's so literary. It is literary. Yeah. Cal Woods's book is literary in a different way. You know, the care in in language and sentence structure and craft in both of these novels is top shelf. Um, and I think one of the reasons I Am Homeless works so well and it doesn't bounce you off the page and you're going, what, what am I doing? What the hell? Just pick a plot. <laughs> <laughs> is... The, the language, the characters, the, the interactions the characters have, there is such a, a strong vein of surreal humour that runs through. It does not take itself seriously on a sentence level. You know, the clown shoes, yeah. the, the jokes, the, the dad jokes that Finn makes all the way through, the way you just go, oh, stop, you're trying too hard. Not Laurie Moore trying too hard. The character, like, we, we can we know Finn from, like, Five pages in. We also don't know him because layers come out. Um, I wanted to, like, account for his conspiracy theories tendencies oh way my too God. much. That whole, that whole section on conspiracy And then I realised, like, no, you are just a bit of a nutter, actually. Yeah, no, no, no. But, but, the, but that, whole, that whole section when he's with his brother and he's going through his conspiracy theory thing yeah. is just genius and it is exactly an example of a thing that just, I mean, it sort of is integral to the novel when, yeah. without spoiling it, but it also isn't. It's, yeah. it's like, yeah, you are just a complete, as you said, you're, yeah, that's, like, that's your pick start, you, you start off, he's, you're thinking, oh, he, he's just like, I'm theoretically interested in conspiracy yeah. theories. Yeah. And then at some point you realise, mm, you've drunk the Kool-Aid. I've got to say, the relationship between him and his brother, that whole, that whole yeah. early section is gorgeous. And I, how tragic is is this story. This story is so it, tragic. It, he it's leaves steeped his, in death. It's saturated yeah, in death. But he, like he's gone yeah. to be with his brother who is in hospice and who is going to die very soon, you know, maybe weeks, probably days, and he's gone to be with his brother to not – it's funny because I, I was thinking of the, the Richard Flanagan 
novel yeah. we, we read a couple of episodes ago. Um, you know, he, he's not wanting to prolong his brother's death in the sense of, you know, medical interventions and, and pain and all of that, but he's wanting to keep his brother alive for as long as his brother wants to be and to make those last days, potentially weeks, good ones, right? And part of that is tangled up in the natural knowledge of impending loss and wanting wanting to put that loss off as much as possible for Finn, right? Yeah. He, he doesn't want to lose his brother. He loves his brother. And then he, he leaves <laughs> because he's... He's heard his ex-girlfriend has committed has committed suicide. I, you know, um, and he it's like what? Just stay with your. Pr-. But this is who Finn is. Like this, you meet him driving around in a car with and a he's cat not- litter on the back seat. Get his <laughs> and he's in this Airbnb, and, and he's knocked over a pottery. He's thing knocked or- over a yeah, like a like. And, a, he's, and, and he's, he's got shots. <laughs> Because he's got to go try to find it and he's just in this disorganised sort of like he's in a pinball machine and he just lets himself he's off work because the principal's wife is wanted to have an affair. Maybe, maybe, well, I mean, I don't know if I quite believe that that's why. It might be more the spouting conspiracy theories to your students thing um maybe the principal's wife made a pass at him that he rebuffed and therefore he got who who knows finn is <laughs> finn is kind of unreliable but, but, but in, in finn is the, finn is the, the novel finn yeah is the novel the novel is finn they are the same yeah yeah <laughs> and he and you just you want to grab him sometimes and just shake him because he is he's keenly self-aware in some respects, but in many respects he is not. And um, and it leaves that. You and kind then of he like him to, despite yourself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's, that, that is amazing because a lot of people, oh, he's unlikable. Well, he's actually not. He's extremely yeah. sympathetic. But then he leaves that and goes to a, to the grave. Yeah. He's like, which, why which, would you mem- leave your brother? He's going to die with that. <laughs> what are you do? Stop. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> but he goes there and he's, he's oh, again, uh, look, there's so much going on in this very short novel that I've forgotten some bits. But uh, from memory, the grave the gravesite's organic. Like it's it's, it's, it's a, uh, like it, it is a, a green cemetery, yeah. so peop- you are, you aren't embalmed with chemicals. You're not interred in and a coffin. And he thinks he thinks that, that his girl that his ex girlfriend is actually still alive. That she may that they, they wouldn't have been sure that she was dead. Could they be sure? Yeah, he has again, this whole again conspiracy conspiracy. And you know what? She is alive, except she isn't. She is dead. She's a zombie. She is <laughs> death I mean, adjacent. Death adjacent. Death adjacent, which is the perfect word because zombie has so much baggage now. And if you say zombie, she she's not a zombie as we think about zombies. She's also not a zombie in the old traditional um, Haitian sense. Yeah. Of, like she's she's she is she's an animated corpse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who is slowly death rotting. adjacent is what she, who is slowly rotting who is rotting and this is not a hallucination although again with this sort of novel only it's really <laughs> interesting reading some of the reviews because who some that, of who thought the it was reviewer, a hallucination well they've tied themselves in knots to, to try to yes. make her not an animated like a literal physical animated corpse See, Siegel leans into that. 
That's what I love about her reviews. Yeah. She goes, no, well. <laughs> she's a whatever. corpse. Other she's people corpse. can see her. Correct. It, she's it's... physical. She's she's not. There was one review called it a ghost ghost. Like, she's not a fucking ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. Stop trying to make this nice and, and, and literary. It's, and she's Laurie not Moore a ghost. And clearly does not give a shit about whether this is no. a question of is she real, is she not. This is what it is. <laughs> you take it. Take it or yeah. leave it. I she, don't care. Her, her body has died. <laughs> yeah. But she is. Somehow, inexplicably, still, and and is it because Finn can't let her go? Is it because she remains in? Imbi- she she um she committed well, well, suicide. Well, well, the normal is it because idea is that she wants to be buried elsewhere. She wants to be yeah buried, yeah you know. But right? yes, but yeah yeah. And so the road trip is to take her from this green cemetery where she's apparently didn't really want to be buried to a body farm yeah. um, so her body can be used for science. And, oh, my God, the science they could do. Um, <laughs> so, can, can we just go back a step? Do you like this and so the Like the premise, like the, the assumption, not the premise, the assumption is that once she gets to the place where she actually wants to be buried, not unlike a ghost <laughs> story, she will actually then die because yes. she has been laid to rest properly and she will then actually die and, you know, and I want to come back to that in a second, but I just something's popped in my head. And this is sure. a bit like this novel and how it works. Do you like the bit? <laughs> I love this. I can tell so you much. do. <laughs> Where he he, he's, he he goes off the road, yeah? And he's looking for he's had a car accident. Oh, oh wherever. right, yep, yep. And he's looking for help and he goes to a barnyard farm type place, a house. And in there, there's people doing weird shit, and he doesn't know what they're doing, but they help him out, and we never return there, and we never know what the, what's going on. And and you go, what? What? Why did? He, what was the purpose of all of that? <laughs> why did he even? Why did she even put the accident in there? What was? That's this novel, which sounds which sounds like it's random bullshit, but it isn't because the conversation. And I'm using my hands a lot. You notice that? I, I don't know. I can see that because I was really excited. The conversation between Finn and Lily is just – because it, it's about her taking her life. I mean, it isn't yeah. always about that. They they talk about their relationship and all that and and And, and, and why it didn't work. They, and I why mean, it didn't work. She, she it, is his ex-girlfriend, yes. not because she's dead, but because they split up about a year before. She went with someone else. Correct. You know. and, and, and it's sort of they're, – they're, they're ploughing that old ground as well. Yeah. But it is – the stuff about why she took her life is so – Done mm. so beautifully, and it reminded me. Have you read my all my puny sorrows by Miriam Toes? I've not, but that is on my list. Maybe we should do that next year. <laughs> Maybe we should, yes, because it is a terrific book, and and probably I deserve to reread it. Um, it's deserving of a reread, is what I mean to say. And um, that also deals with the same question, but in also the same wry sense of humour, as in because mm. in that case, it's it's a sister doing everything she can to keep and it's all it's also very autobiographical this this is actually what happened to Miriam Tyson's mm. sister but um trying to keep her alive but also understanding that maybe she can't that it is what it you know and this yeah. that same thing is happening here i mean it happens that lily's already dead but that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the case in the, all my puny sorrows but it, it, the same conversation is had about why why did you do this what's and it's not just this um i don't know lecturing thing from finn it's so much it's beautiful it's mm. it's and it funny is, and it's funny a conversation you could have with someone after they've gone and in you know in this case um you know taken their own life and and they get finn gets but also she gets to have that conversation she gets to explain um which 
obviously when people die, they don't get to explain anything anymore. And those of us who are left have to try to understand, try to maybe put together what may have happened and why, and it's never any satisfactory answers that we get. Yep. So this this road trip that Finn and Lily get to have is is like a, a, a gift they, they both get. Finn gets to find some sort of way to wind up his experience with Lily, you know, the relationship, but also what happened to her and how he felt about her and why he felt about her and and Lily gets to justify herself you know and and she's like this would have failed completely for me if the road trip had all been about Lily going yeah I kind of wish I hadn't yes I kind of wish I was still here but oh well um which is sort of what what like part of Finn's mission um during this trip is to try to like he he feels um, and he articulates this in a really lovely but clumsy way. He feels if he can just make her essentially regret having killed herself, make her want to be alive again, and maybe this is why she is, maybe a part of her didn't really want to die. And if he can just convince her of that, bang, everything will be fine. She'll be alive again. Her body will somehow <laughs> just as miraculously restore itself and everyth- and they can get together and blah, blah, blah. And it is... It is this beautiful, fantastical representation of the desire that you have, not just if someone has died and especially this tragically, but if a relationship is broken up and this this need, if I can just, if just, if just, if just, it can be fixed. It can be, you know, the time can be wound back. If just, if just. And there's yeah. never a there's never an if just. You know, never. But this road trip is this beautiful articulation of those emotions from Finn's side of stuff of things but the most amazing thing about the core of this book is it it's not just about Finn like it's Lily Lily is part of that trip she's not a passive actor in this book she is articulate she is funny she's dark she is you know sulky she is joyful and she gets we get to see Lily not just through Finn, we get to see her. Yeah. And it's really amazing. I, I, I sort of want to end the conversation on that because that's perfect end for a book that has no perfect end. end. <laughs> I did want to briefly mention the boarding house stuff, the stuff set in the 19th century because I loved it. And, yes, it's only tangentially connected to the main story, but I just liked it anyway. I don't think it matters because what, I mean. Well, it, it doesn't. Book. The whole book is attending to, de- <laughs> as Paul Siegel said, it's a, it's a form of destabilisation yeah. of narrative. It doesn't, yeah, I mean, keep going. Yeah. It's not, it's not, you can't quite, it is a short novel. You can't quite call it a mosaic because I, I don't think you can have a mosaic with only two pieces. <laughs> but it's it's more a, a meditation on death and love and bereavement yeah. and loss and how how we cope with that i i think this will spoil it very slightly but um we do find out about halfway through the journal narrative that the sister the the the, the woman is writing to is dead you you first think she's just writing to her sister who who must live elsewhere 
because she does talk about, you know, living out here. And so, you know, it feels like there's a geographic distance. And then yes, that's key. the sister's actually yeah. dead. So this is this is how this is how this this is how Elizabeth is coping. She's coping with her sister's death by still talking and not just talking, writing her letters. Yes. Like in a journal, writing a journal to her sister. And so the, the whole book is about different ways that we as humans cope with these massive uncontrollable things that in in a life where we want to control everything yep and so it is related i almost would have liked finn not to have found the journal in the boarding house i would almost have liked it to have just been this other narrative which is linked by theme and content rather than oh here's a plot hinge and it does and it, it, in a sense yeah he didn't have to because there were other little thematic connections like mm. This the, the 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 Lincoln stuff, which without going into too much Abraham yeah. Lincoln stuff, that that are picked up on both. So you know, it's, but it doesn't matter. I mean, you're right. It, it is it is about dealing how to deal with these issues, and that's why the book is so unstable because these questions are not easy. There's no happy answers to them. I, I think like unstable is a really good word to use, and and I love that that pull quote from the review that you read and I will find that and link it but again if you've already read in New Yorker this month you might need to wait to the next month but you're um, going to say a but here you're going to say a but no but I don't I th- I think the book is unstable in terms of plot and in terms of what we um what we talk about as like yeah. a conventional narrative yeah um I think it is incredibly cohesive and incredibly tightly as tightly woven as after the forest really but thematically yeah. and in terms of what it is actually talking Correct. about. There's nothing in there that is out of place. Correct. And this is and this is, goes back to the original point. This is what I think we'll end here. But the original – because I want to have the last word. So stop. No, no. Go for it. Last word. No, this goes back to the original point that this is how – this is not a pretentious piece of work because the writing, the humour, but there is a theme that brings – maybe not in a, in, a, in a satisfying plot way, but in a, mm. you walk away going, I understand. I yeah. know what you, I know what this is, and and I and I feel it, and I and I sympathise with these characters, and I and I and I and it's profound, you know, in, in all, how all good literature should be. And yeah, if it was genuinely that sort of pretentious literary guff, you would you'd be hollow. You'd go, "What was the point of any of this?" And you don't walk away that with this novel. You go, "Okay, yes." Just like it's clear what Kel Woods is doing, it's clear what Laurie Moore is doing. That just yeah. Taking very, very different. <laughs> so, di- so different. <laughs> so different. So different. More people, more people, and I'm speaking to our listeners here because who I know are very smart. More people need to be more willing to open themselves up to a different narrative approaches. That's all. Yes, agreed. Hundred percent agreed. Agreed. <laughs> okay, right. we will leave it there. That was a good. As chat. you can tell, I got both, all excited. <laughs> we both really loved both these books. Very, very different, but highly recommend both. I am probably going to try to track down Laurie, at least uh, one of Laurie. I'm Moore's definitely going to read more Laurie over Moore. summer uh, and have a, have a dip in. Yeah, um, I'm very interested in the next Kel Woods. I book. actually want to read a criticism. Oh, Laurie Moore, it's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so, but as I said at the very beginning, uh, last episode for 2023, we are taking a break over summer. I did bring a pile of books back from the Conflux Speculative Fiction Convention at the beginning of October, which I will endeavour to read (laughs) rather than add them to my to-be-read shelf over the summer, along with the next two books that we are going to discuss. I'm very excited about this. In February. 
So the first one is A Haunting on the Hill by Elizabeth Hand, which is, and I don't know too much about it, and I'm not going to learn anything more about it until I read the book, but it is a a reimagining, a reworking. Yeah, it's been called an authorised sequel. An authorised sequel um, to The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, which I've been meaning to reread for ages. Which so that I've is the, never read. Which Ian's never read. So that is the second book for the podcast. So we are going to, um, and I'd probably recommend Ian you read the Jackson first, oh, just in case you were wondering. I might read. Right. Richard, I might read Richard Matheson's Hell House as well, which I've never read. Just to chuck that in, if you want to do. It's not with, really not related. <laughs> no. Um, anyway, so I am super excited about this because I've, I've been wanting to reread The Haunting of Hill House. It's been probably a couple of decades and for some reason last year this book just ha, haunted me <laughs> and it just kept popping up everywhere in discussions just you know I watched The Haunting of Your House. So this happened to me as well when Victor Laval was um, spruiking his new novel which then was New Lone Women which is very good mm-hmm. uh, he, he just spent 10 minutes talking about Haunting of Your House <laughs> and, and so uh, honestly can- it's just it's just kept popping up it's like I really need to reread that it's been a very long time I've read We've Always Lived in the Castle about three or four times which I love that book but I I honestly don't know if I've even reread Haunting of Hill House once I may have only I've never read, read it once, because I'm a I'm bad sure. person I've read the first page like 50,000 times, but um, it's got one of the great opening paragraphs. It's the best opening ever committed yeah. to print in English. Well, it's it's up against, uh, you know, the, the best, the no, best, no, but it's up best, against her other book. The, the, the one you, it's the, better. No, no. The opening Hill House is a better opening than we've always lived in the castle, which is a really good opening, but the haunting of Hill House is better. Okay. Anyway, and I will read that again. <laughs> Because I take every opportunity to read the first paragraph of A Haunting of Hill House. I mean, it's, it's like everyone says it's one of the most perfectly – I mean, I've read that, – that is the only part of the book I've read. Everyone says it's the most perfectly crafted paragraph it in is. the history of literature. Um, so that's February. So have a read of those two, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson and A Haunting on the Hill by Elizabeth Hand. And I, I like Elizabeth Hand's work. I don't yes, read so do I. enough Elizabeth Hand, so I'm neither really do, Neither do I because there's too much to read, Kirsten. Have you noticed that? Too much to read. Um, yes, I look at my stack of five, six books. I mean, and- in the real world, if I was 20 years younger, I would just go spend the next oh, month reading Laurie Moore novels. For, Not at Conflux, but just before oh, Conflux, yeah. I bought My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones, so that also gets added to the stack because my local bookshop in Ballarat has a tiny, eeny, weeny little horror shelf. It's only three shelves. It's down the bottom, but it is horror. And they had interesting things that you don't necessarily expect little bookshops in Ballarat to have. So I thought I want to support them. I will buy a horror book from you at least once a month. <laughs> Can I just say the book The book that's getting all the talk uh, is, and the one I may recommend it for the podcast, although I might read it over <laughs> summer, is Tanner Eve Jew's latest. Oh yeah, the reformatory. Yes, but it's a, but it's a chunker. I just will it is say a that. chunker. Anyway, don't do that to me over summer. I haven't no, no, to no, read no, over. No, summer. no, no. It's fine. It's fine. Need fair warning. Might need like a three month warning on that book. <laughs> That's not that long. It's not the deluge, which I did read for Locus, but oh. Mark, which is amazing. But it is nine hundred pages. It's like yeah. like it's like it'll kill you. <laughs> well, it will if it falls on you yes. from a great height. <laughs> cool. All right. Okay. Let's finish it up. That's us. So. um have a good end of year 
folks, whatever it is you get up to, even if that thing is nothing, which to me sounds just ideal right now. I have, I have a lot of nothing in my end of year. Uh, you can send us feedback by commenting on the website, which is writerandcritic.podbean.com. You can send an email to writerandcritic at gmail.com or if you can, um, you can sponsor us on Patreon, which uh, would be wonderful. We greatly appreciate our patrons. Thank you so much. You help keep the lights on as always. And that is us done. It's well, really um, nice to end the year with two great books that we both loved. Yes. <laughs> yes. Have a good summer slash winter if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Be safe and happy, everyone. Be safe and happy. We will see you next year. Bye. Bye. I'm out thinking you here. I'm out thinking you. You're trying to get the upper hand. Do you? Th- but I'm out thinking you. Do you think you're out thinking me? I am. <laughs>